Welcome to Schoolhouse, Equity in Education. I am Jamie Coppell, and I am your host today. On Schoolhouse, we work to bring you the voices of the Communities for Just Schools Fund's communities partners, grassroots organizers courageously working for the schools and the communities all children deserve. Today, we'll be discussing the School to Deportation Pipeline. Many of us have heard of the school-to-prison pipeline. We're familiar with the data proving there are significant racial disparities in school discipline and law enforcement referrals from schools. We've seen the evidence that demonstrates that this punitive discipline is being meted out not because children of color, LGBTQ students, students with disabilities, and immigrant students are consistently less well-behaved, but rather because we respond more punitively to them than we do to their white peers. Today, we will explore another pipeline away from the things that children deserve and why we will devote significant time to the specific issue of how schools are funneling children along a pipeline to deportation. There is no doubt that those instances do not exist in a vacuum when it comes to how systems are conspiring. What I mean by this is that conversations about the school-to-deportation pipeline cannot and should not be divorced from conversations about the inhumane separation of children from their families at the border, when in many instances they are coming here seeking asylum. In this moment, and when considering the school-to-deportation pipeline, we must also remember this nation's legacy of separating families. What we see happening on the border today is not new. It is eerily similar to the separation of Native children from their families. They were sent to boarding schools to ensure they were stripped of their culture and their traditions. Conversations about the school-to-deportation pipeline must also include consideration of the Muslim ban that was just upheld by the Supreme Court of the United States this week. Connecting these dots so that we can stop permitting others to lead this nation in broken conversations about who belongs and who does not, is surely a better path to the relationships, schools, and communities our children deserve. And with that framework for the conversation, I am so pleased to introduce our esteemed guests. They are Ricardo Martinez, the co-founder and co-executive director of Padres y Jóvenes Unidos, a multi-issue organization led by people of color in Colorado who work for educational equity, racial justice, immigrant rights, and equal access to achieve a better quality of life. Their Freedom to Learn framework is based on the belief that education is a right, not a privilege. And they believe that all students, regardless of race, income, or immigration status, deserve equal access to high-quality public schools that prepare them for college. Ricardo, welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm also pleased that we're joined by Erica Almiron, the executive director of Vamos Juntos. And little did I know until recently that she is also a photographer. Let me tell you a little bit about Juntos. Juntos is a community-led Latinx immigrant organization in South Philly fighting for their human rights as workers, parents, youth, and immigrants. And they believe that every human being has the right to a quality education and the freedom to live with dignity, regardless of immigration status. Erica, welcome. Thanks for having me. Ricardo, your organization, Padres y Jóvenes Unidos, 
has been at the forefront of efforts to limit and now end the militarization of schools in Colorado. I know that Padres has adopted a school-to-deportation framework in your work. Can you tell the audience a little bit about how you define the school-to-deportation pipeline? For students who are undocumented, the risk of deportation when they show up at a court hearing, mm-hmm. that happened to some of our members who have since graduated from high school. Incidents happened in school. He got a ticket, and he went to the first court hearing, and then he just flew off the rest of the second hearing. And three years after he graduated from high school, him and his friends got stopped in their, their car, and they ran the check on him, and he had, you know, defense warrant, and he was taken to jail. And then from there, he was put in the, on the detainer for guys with the immigration services. It was a consequence of something that, you know, stupid that happened in high school. Mm-hmm. And three years later, he was, he was wanted to be deported. Luckily, we were able to intervene and he was, he was released. That is the school to jail pipeline and the deportation pipeline also becomes evident. I understand that re- recently the Secretary of Education made a comment when asked a specific question about if she thought it was appropriate for schools to cooperate with ICE. She has since clarified her newly acquired understanding of the law, but I understand her her first response was to say she thought that was a local matter. It sounds like you're seeing that playing out in practice. Secretary DeVoxen was saying that, you know, that it's a local matter. We know how you say it's not, but it's the unfortunately the first contact is a local matter. Ricardo, I'm sitting here listening and I'm reflecting on a conversation actually I had with Erica in the first part, I think, of 2017, if I remember correctly. I remember you telling me just how big a role Juntos has found itself having to take on just to deal with the very, very real nature of the pressure that people, the fear people are living under these days. I wonder if we could use that as a moment for you to talk a little bit about the way I've heard you talk about Juntos as more than an organizing group. I know you often serve as a, a de facto support network and almost like a social services agency for your community members in Philly. And I know that right now, many of your community members are in need of major support. It would be great if you could talk a little bit about what that looks like. And then I'd love to talk a little bit about what is Burks and have you unpack who's there and what that means and what you're doing about it. First, I just want to say that I'm I'm literally maybe two hours outside of Philly at a youth retreat with 12 young people in the Poconos. And I think we're having a lot of the conversations about what's happening right now in the country and really reflecting about both the kids that are spending the night at Burke and the kids that are spending their nights over in Tornillo in these camps that are being built up at the border and also the real reality that the young people in Philly face and there's a lot of overlap. And I think that like what happens in Juntos is we're the only organization for Latinx groups. We're a small organization with three full-time staff and a part-time staff and it's probably the most trusted organization where families know they can come if there is a raid, if there is a, a stop, if they're pulled over by ICE. We had a case of a nine-year-old who was crossed maybe about a, a month ago, and their undocumented parents are figuring out how to get reunited with their child right now. And we're the first stop for that. We're like, how do we actually get access to be reunited with our children? I think that what we've been building up recently has been a lot of 
kind of a ramp up of know your rights information, which we know is the biggest protection for folks. But we also are looking at policies that can be passed locally. And the concept of, you know, Philadelphia is known as a sanctuary city. But we know that, like, the current policies just are not enough, given what we're up against and the massive criminalization of immigrants in this moment. So a lot of our asks are about what does it look like to actually separate police and ICE and getting ICE out of our databases, getting ICE out of the courtrooms. And even though ICE is not inside of our schools right now, the police presence in our schools, like, you know, can really trigger a deportation for any of our young people. We're actually working right now on Know Your Rights workshops with our young people about what their rights are if police are in their school. We had a case also about two months ago of a, of a fight that broke out in the local high school, and the police were called in, and one of the young people was 18, but he was also a high school student, so the police were called in, and he got arrested for the fight, and he's already in, in deportation proceedings. So there are so many levels, I think, of how our young people are confronting this mass criminalization and also being deprived of a quality education. Most of the schools that our kids go to are underfunded schools. And also inside of Burke, the young people are being housed in like one room where eight grades are being put together by one teacher. So the quality of education inside of these detention centers, they're abysmal. And they're also talking about an expansion of detention centers. The conversation that came out recently about everyone's freedom to keep families together which is right, but it's also that, like, when we say that, then you make room for an executive order from Trump that says, well, okay, we'll keep them together and we'll just balloon family detention, which is just a fancy way to describe internment camps in our eyes. So, Erica, I want to come back to Know Your Rights and some of the specific stories and the connections between the work of Padres y Jovenes and Juntos. But tell us a little bit first, if I might ask, about what is Burke's? So Burke is a family detention center. It's actually from where we are right now, about 45 minutes away. It's in Burke County. For many years, it was a place where families would come in and get processed. And because there is a Flores Agreement, which is a lawsuit from the 80s, that said that children couldn't be detained for more than 20 days. Originally, we had children who would be there for 20 days, and the moms would also be there, and they would be released. Over the last several years, under the Obama administration, we started noticing that women and children were being detained for months at a time, mm -hmm. which led a lot of the children to be there who actually, because of being detained for so long, had stopped growing, were actually underweight. We had young children with suicidal ideation, and we had mothers who were sick and were being unattended to and had all kinds of medical issues. We got word of Burks actually because there was a rape inside by a guard of a 19-year-old woman inside, actually in front of an 8-year-old child. So when we heard of that, we started organizing to make a call to shut down the facility, and the women launched a work strike because they were getting paid a dollar a day to clean the facility. And they were using that money to buy food for their children because the food the kids stopped eating because it was the same food every day. That's why they were losing a lot of weight. So a lot of our work was to shut down the center because then what we found out was actually if the state of Pennsylvania had the wrong license for the facility. So for all those years, people were being housed in what was being licensed as a juvenile center. 
And so even though the state took away the license, it still remains open because the county refuses to shut it down and the governor isn't doing what he could do to shut it down. And now in this moment, when they're calling for a ballooning of this, we see our, our ability to really shout out that we can't actually replicate birth. Birth is poison. And we need to put a stop to family detention and all detention at all prisons. Actually, when it comes down to it, at the end of the day, we should not be a society that's engaging people as appropriate anytime. And I think that people should just know that these are internment camps. And what the administration is proposing is to expand this. What it means is that some families were detained up to two years waiting for their asylum cases to be decided. Women and children were inside. We had a baby who was weeks old. We had a four-year-old who spent more time, like half of his life, basically behind the walls of the detention center. They cannot leave for school, although it is against the law, because as we know, undocumented folks are are given access to public education. And there was a move to get the young people who were detained to have access to the local public school. And this is during the Obama administration. It did not move. I just don't understand what kind of people we are. Like, let me just kind of go into that. Like, mm-hmm. And the women did hunger strikes to bring attention, to want to be released. And the women that we were visiting most often, most of them are now out. But there's a churning effort that is just consistently happening where there's just lots of people who are detained for a long time and as soon as they get out that bed is filled. So we do need to call for a shutdown of the three detention family detention centers that exist because they are atrocious and we need to be rallying to end all of the family detention centers and really taking into question what we want in this in our future. I think that we're also actively fighting in Puntos for shutting down of Close the Creek as our campaign to shut down the local jail here in Philadelphia. Cages are unnecessary. We're we're better than that. Human beings need to be better than that. I'm sitting here reflecting on how the school to deportation pipeline framework doesn't even fully fit the horrors you're describing of what children and families are experiencing in facilities like Burke's when it comes to the fact that that's really an instance where school is detention. You know, there's something in there where you are experiencing and when you're experiencing it for so long, uh, when it's all so enmeshed, I guess I'm wondering what are the actions that you want? I know that there has been an effort and you've had some unlikely allies in the form of the Philadelphia City Council, if I'm not mistaken, in terms of calling for the closure of Berks. We did just last week to the council pass a resolution urging the governor to shut down Burke, which hasn't happened before. Mm-hmm. We're actually having a rally on Saturday that's both asking for the shutdown of Burke and to end family detention, but also to largely talk about the concept of expanding sanctuary. That even though we're a sanctuary city, we need to do more. And to me, that means getting some lease out of school. Mm-hmm. It means getting ice out of our databases, getting ice out of our courtrooms. We need to just sever ICE's ties to everything and defund the whole institution. Can you actually tell us, and then I'm going to turn back to you, Ricardo, a little bit about the abolish ICE movement that is taking hold around the nation right now? Yeah, we're working really closely. Juntos is a, a partner in 
and co-founder of the Mijente National Movement that includes organizations from across the country, including Pilar in Atlanta and in Georgia and Puente in Arizona and OCAD over in Chicago and, you know, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people who are calling for the abolishment of ICE. We were actually doing a training today with young people, and some young people were born, like, 2001, 2000, like, half of the room. Mm -hmm. And we talked about how some of them are actually older than ICE, and that they actually were able to live in a time when ICE didn't exist. And they were floored. They thought that, that ICE existed from the 1800s, and that... That ICE is a mechanism that's now being used by this white supremacist government mm -hmm. to essentially be the Gestapo of this new age regime. And that the only way to really stop this overreach and criminalization of people of color is to just cut it off at its knees, to defund it, to abolish it, for every congressperson to no longer fund this crazy dream of criminalizing migrants. And especially from an administration that uses young people and children through removing DACA or separating them from their parents as a tool to get their border wall and for more enforcement. Ricardo, maybe we can start with you. And I'd, yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what this moment means, what sanctuary, which is such a sacred word in the work that both of your organizations are doing and the ways in which you've been supports for your communities would love to hear your thoughts on what sanctuary means in this moment and, and what that looks like in your work. Last year, we forced the Denver Public School Board to pass a resolution creating the schools as uh, safe places. And that was in tandem with uh, the policy that had been under Obama about having places that were sensitive areas, right? So that dives in before INS would not go into. And so at the beginning, they didn't want to mandate training for all staff and personnel in the schools as to how not to collaborate with ICE, uh, not allow them in the schools, um, have the legal team from the Denver Public Schools address directly with ICE, and any kind of request that was passed last uh, November or last year, it's actually being put into effect now. And they also created a legal fund for to fight deportation, so that kind of stuff. We have the cases that we, that we have heard of ICE Asking for information on a particular student has been rejected three times now that we know. It's a good thing when we look in the sanctuary schools or actually calling it safe schools, it has to be for everybody. And it has to be against all, all enforcement mechanisms. Uh, ICE is no different in terms of, uh, of the police department in terms of what the, you know, the arrest powers they have and, and the danger that they pose to students and all students. And so, we don't see a difference in terms of when we're looking at, at, at what people call sanctuary, sanctuary movement, they have to apply to all students because the danger of students being incarcerated is really great with certain populations and then the additional danger of getting deported for a particular you know, sector of the student body in school, you know, getting the police out of the school and using that money to hire more support personnel, whether it's counselors, more teachers, whatever you know, the schools need, because uh, the impact of, of SROs on the police officers in the schools is, is tremendous. And now that school district wants to create their own private police force, they want to be, become certified law enforcement police officers to come 
and be able to arrest and enforce laws and that kind of stuff. And you said before, too, by the way. And so they want to go in that direction because we, and that's it, you know, we've really been joining with other folks to put a stop to it because it is, it really is ramping up, uh, the criminalization and creating unsafe environments in our schools. Eric, I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts a little bit about this idea of sanctuary and solidarity. What's good for just all students in Philly schools is also good for the students in Burke, in Burke's right now. The concept of sanctuary comes from a old Latin American tradition of, of churches offering sanctuary to folks. I mean, way long before this, but also like the most recent was of immigrants taking sanctuary inside of churches. And I think that, you know, there was like this huge move of all of these cities to claim that they were sanctuary cities. Or even there was a move at, right after the election of schools to claim that they were sanctuary schools. And we were really thrown back by that. You know, somebody who grew up in Philly and has seen, like, U.S. citizen black and brown folks being attacked by police or police in schools or mass incarceration, that we didn't see Philadelphia being a sanctuary for all the people that we grew up with in our neighborhood. And that if we wanted to be real sanctuaries, we really had to go above and beyond. And even though we have some progressive policies in place, it's not enough. To say that we don't want ICE in our schools is not enough when we know that police currently exist in our schools and police are actually the ones who have been targeting and harassing a lot of our young people and making our young people criminalized every day by going to metal detectors or, you know, growing juvenile detention centers. We see also an exploring of that. A lot of the movement, I think, has really been supportive of it which is like expand sanctuary means better policies to protect people who are under attack, which includes immigrants, which includes, you know, black folks, which includes people of color. I know that we feel a little overwhelmed. Um, maybe I'll just speak for myself. We are in a very distant time, you know, and it feels a little bit like a storm. But there's something really calming about being able to sit in a room with a diverse group of people really understanding each other and what their needs are. And to me, as we build sanctuary, I still find sanctuary for myself being able to think of new ways to fight back with some people that I trust through the movement. And I'm also grateful for lots of communities who are standing up for our families right now. And one of the things that we're asking people to do is, yeah, fight for our families, but fight also for the juvenile that has been locked up since he was 14 in charge as an adult and who's sitting in a prison with adults right now. Like, we should be fighting for all of those young people right now, for the young people at Berks and definitely for the kids that are at the border right now. We have a foundation upon which we can build. We have a foundation upon, if we choose to, we can actually fix these systems so that we don't have children who've spent more than half of their lives languishing in Burks, perhaps studying occasionally in a one-room classroom. We can avoid situations where a young person has a parking ticket that they got while in high school that ends up resulting in a bench warrant when they're a young adult that ends up leading to a deportation. You know, we have the ability to make choices, to change policies and practices, 
to, as you both have talked about, defund systems, defund policing that is working counter to those objectives. And so I'd love to just hear from both of you in the spirit of the ways in which you work across young people's experiences in schools and in communities, what would you want people to know about the kinds of actions they can take right now that will lead us in the direction we want to go? If there's ever been a time to kind of step into the movement now, right? I think the ways that we've been trying to plug in folks and also like really build up our community is one, this is the moment to hit the street. There will be, I think, lots and lots of ways for people to hit the streets and be out and really protest what's happening because we know that when there are more people in the streets and there's a more visible resistance, that that's actually ways that we can make change. So anytime you get an opportunity, be out there with folks. Make sure that you're fighting back. In Philly, we actually built something out called the Community Resistance Zone. And the Community Resistance Zones are ways that we train our leaders to know their rights, but also that they can train other people in the community their rights. So we're trying to get as many people to know their rights with ICE and with police that includes adults and young people. So this weekend we're teaching our young people all of their rights when it comes to documenting and it comes to like what happens if you see ICE at your front door, what happens if ICE stops you or a loved one. And they're teaching their parents their rights. So it's been beautiful to see that. And then we're also teaching allies that a little bit of like, see something, say something, but in the reverse, that's mm-hmm. usually the tagline that the police have, and that's usually the tagline that ICE has. Or if you go to the airport, what the airport has. Now is the time for allies to stand up, use the privilege that you have. If you see a police stop, a person of color, pull over, watch them, document it. If you see an arrest, do the same thing. If you see ICE in the neighborhood, do the same thing. And be responsive to this moment. Don't let our folks just get taken away or disappeared. And think about what it's going to be like in 20 years from now. What did you do? Did you just stand by and watch it happen? And so a lot of our training for allies has been to join the resistance in that way. And we're actually doing trainings across the state. So we've done Pittsburgh. We've done Harrisburg. And we have a training in Philadelphia again this coming month, that at this point is full. There's a waiting list. So it shows you that people are really interested in showing up in this moment. We have created a, a rapid response team here in Denver, actually for the entire state of Colorado, that if you see any ICE activity, you see it or hear about it, and we have a system to come with a call, with an intake. And we have it set up here in, in the state, and uh, this is last week. A similar program that's set up in their own, despite most, most of us. Like Eric is saying, a lot of our friends, folks who want volunteers who want support, will be on the phone. So you know, they take shifts on, on being the, you know, the, the person who gets the first call. Uh, and then, you know, send people out. And similar here too. Like this Saturday, we're going to have a rally at the Citizen Park in downtown Denver protesting and asking, calling for the end of family separation. I think whatever people can do to express their opposition, they're able to set up networks and systems and they can to respond to these crises. I think that that's happening with, with this administration and ICE, the Attorney General and the Sessions, is not going to end there. It's going to continue and it's going to expand. 
So it's our responsibility to find ways to oppose it. Opposing it is not sufficient. We have to have a clear sense of what, we, what do we need and what do we want in terms of policies. Mm-hmm. Like we knew when in 2012, President Obama instituted DACA, that was just a temporary victory. It was just a band-aid, it was a stopgap to give youth some breathing room to be able to, you know, to express it more and, and organize it more. On a more hopeful note, Ricardo, Padres y Jovenes has done amazing work, is really a national champion when it comes to what a grassroots organizing group can do and lead around ensuring that schools not only are not leaning on punitive responses and exclusionary responses to what is normal childhood behavior, and instead are relying on positive alternatives that teach our young people and teach adults conflict resolution. And in particular, I'm talking about restorative practices. So as we think about all of the harms that have been perpetrated against immigrant children and their families in this moment, in their schools and in their communities, what would you want people to know about and think about as the role for restorative practices in the context of this conversation around the school-to-deportation pipeline and the school-to-prison pipeline overall? The idea of, of finding alternatives to deal with their behavior, shooting behavior in schools, really is you know, taking hold. And I would say this idea of finding alternatives is just as not tied to immigrant students around the deportation pipeline. This is something that needs to happen throughout with all, all students. You know, when, when we started this, you know, this effort to find alternatives to suspensions, expulsions, and calling the police, and then something of, again, having to suffer the, the additional danger of, of being deported. Or if they were citizens, mm-hmm. they were born in this country, and they had to have the parents show up by a court hearing and put the entire family at risk. The impact of all this, of not finding alternatives, really is going for going for the first hit in the indemnities, suspensions and expulsions and calling the police. We really have to struggle with a lot of administrators in schools to change their mindset. But this didn't happen overnight. This this is really really establishing some of the restorative practices in, in the school district has been honestly it's been since two thousand and eight. So we're looking at ten years. And it's going to be effective. There's less suspensions, less expulsions. A uh, number of tickets are dropping. And so every year, there's some spike. This past year, there was a spike from, from suspensions and from calling the police. But overall, they're dropping. And to us, it's how do we make sure that that these alternatives are available and the training available for all teachers, all school personnel. So we, we have we established a, a training school. So we have peer-to-peer training so that the schools that really have been practicing restorative practices for a long time and doing it well are mentor schools to uh, mentee schools throughout the district. The very intentional structure that we set up, finding a way to sit down and collaborate with the you know, National Education Association, with the local union here, with the school district, it has been um, you know, a long haul, but it's really proven to be really successful in creating safe schools for all students. And I think that is so profoundly important, those words, safe schools, in the aftermath of yesterday's poorly advertised Federal School Safety Commission meeting, 
hosted by the Department of Education, where I'm pleased and proud and confident about the future in being able to say that I think what they hoped to hear were calls for the hardening of schools, for increasing the presence of law enforcement in schools, for taking short-sighted approaches that would increase investments in law enforcement and make it even more difficult to increase investments in the kinds of things that actually ensure schools are equipped to provide for the physical and social-emotional safety and well-being of all of their students. But instead, what they've heard in these listening sessions seems to be, by and large, from a host of community organizers, community organizations, advocates, legal advocacy organizations who are all saying that we want our children to be in schools that value above all else building a culture of connectedness, that understand that creating spaces for real authentic learning comes out of knowing and being in relationship with young people. And so I just am grateful for this conversation with the two of you that is under this title of the School to Deportation Pipeline, but in which you have both so repeatedly demonstrated the ways in which your organizations are working to build solidarity, to ensure that sanctuary means that we're not putting our young people in cages of any kind, whether those are cages called schools or cages called jails or cages called detention centers. So I'm really profoundly grateful to both of you I want to give you each a chance to share how folks can find you on the internet. So, Ricardo, can you tell people where we can find Padres y Jovenes Unidos online? Sure. You know, we have a, a website. It's uh, padresunidos.org. And then uh, you know, on Facebook, and it's just one word, Padres y Jovenes Unidos. On Twitter, it's PJ Unidos. I know we have Instagram, and it's also PJ Unidos. That's why it's good to work with youth organizers, Ricardo. <laughs> oh, yeah, I have to, I have to sit down with and, and explain to me the last one. I forget exactly what is this book. And they, and they gave me the, the look that they, you know, they give the grandparents. Oh. <laughs> but now I, I get it now. I understand it. It's great. And Erica, can you share where people can find Juntos online? Yes. Um, and you probably need to touch it because Padres y Jovenes and our website are both in Spanish. So unless people can mm-hmm. write in Spanish, they won't find us. Yep. But Juntos' is, website is www.vamosjuntos.org. You can find us on Facebook at Vamos Juntos Philly. You can find us on Twitter at Vamos underscore Juntos underscore and also on Instagram at Vamos underscore Juntos underscore. And to model what you suggested, Erica, I'm going to go ahead and spell that for folks. That's Vamos, V-A-M-O-S. Juntos is J-U-N-T-O-S. If you're looking for Padres y Jovenes Unidos, that's Padres, P-A-D-R-E-S, Y. Jovenes is J-O-V-E-N-E-S, and Unidos is U-N-I-D-O-S. You can find me on Twitter at Jamie Copel, that's J-A-I-M-E-K-O-P-E-E-L, and you can visit the Communities for Just Schools Fund at cjsfund.org, and on Twitter at Just Schools. 
We hope you have a wonderful week.